0: Why was the Nazis' worst nightmare the Flapper Girl? We tend to think of the Flapper as a fun but relatively innocuous fad of the Roaring Twenties, but in fact, she attacked gender norms in interwar Germany. Indeed, she was such a threat that the Nazis created their ideal woman in direct opposition to her. You see, the kind of woman that emerged in the interwar period between World War I and World War II was, for many people, unacceptable. That kind of woman, called the New Woman, or Die Neue Frau in German, was epitomized by the flapper girl that we're familiar with from the Roaring Twenties. But with the social tension dial turned up to eleven, she embodied everything— that conservatives like the early Nazis hated about what was happening to their country. We are going to see today what she was like, how she led directly to Nazi ideas of what women should be, why they hated her so much, and finally, how they rallied their anti-Semitic hate machine to stamp out this frightening phenomenon, the flapper girl. I'm B.T. Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. History of Sex is sponsored by Dr. Gillian Kenny, historian of women, sex and magic in medieval Europe. Flapper Girl was a middle finger to traditional womanhood. Now that's hard to understand from our perspective today. The flapper seems to us like just some harmless fashion fad. But to the people of the time, it was a revolution. See, for centuries, women had worn ridiculous amounts of big, puffy, bushy clothes, corseted and bustled, and all intended to artificially exaggerate two physical features, bust and butt. The flapper dress, however, did the exact opposite. It made you straight as a board. Screw what you think you know about women and what they should look like. I don't care. I'm not going to play that game. It was the punk look of its day. Granted, this change did not happen overnight... Since the late 19th century, there had already been something called the rational dress movement gradually reducing the sheer weight of what women wore, but the flapper dress of the 1920s took that trend to its extreme logical conclusion. Historian Irene Gunther, author of Nazi Chic, Fashioning Women in the Third Reich, cites one German author of the time who claimed that a set of women's undergarments in 1923— required 13.85 meters of material, whereas by 1926, only 3.5 meters were needed. That's a 75% reduction in the amount of cloth used to make a woman's dress. And this author warned that the only further reduction that was possible was total nakedness. But wearing less wasn't the only way that the new woman rebelled. Perhaps even more riotous, was that she started wearing pants, and men's dinner jackets, and monocles. Again, it's hard to appreciate, from our perspective today, what this meant. It seems harmless and frankly kind of sexy to us today, but at the time, it was radical. What's more, the flappers' rejection of norms went beyond dress. Women started smoking. This was outrageous. But the concern was not for the health of these women. Remember, people at the time didn't understand the risks of nicotine yet. The concern was that smoking was a man thing. These women were turning into men. Gunther writes, Exacerbating these deep fears were the highly visible changes in female image and conduct, public smoking and drinking, provocative dancing that exuded sexuality, the widened use of cosmetics, the stunning popularity of the short haircut, which went by such names as the Pageboy, the Bob, the Shingle, the Eaton Crop, and the Bubikopf. Now, this haircut that she's describing, this is the same women's hairstyle that we're already familiar with from the 20s, cropped just below the ear with a curl trending forward on either side, you know, very elegant and feminine looking to us today, but not so at the time. The German name for it that Gunther cites, Bubikopf, is quite revealing in this respect. Booby means little boy, and kopf means head, so booby kopf literally means boy head. It's the cut that makes you look like a little boy. Sounds cute, doesn't it? But it was not cute at the time. Rather, it was aggressive. As much as the punk mohawk shocked people of the 70s, the booby kopf rattled those of interwar Germany. And as the 20s went on, the Bubikoff was replaced by an even more masculine look, sleek and brushed straight back. This was the new woman, die neue Frau in German. Her dress and her behavior flew in the face of traditional gender norms. These girls were not girls at all. They rejected traditional girlhood. Now, when you reject one aspect of culture explicitly, the question then becomes, in the mind of onlookers, what else are you rejecting implicitly? I mean, it puts people on the defensive and they start to ask, are you rejecting my way of life? And suddenly, for them, nothing feels certain anymore. Traditional gender norms had come loose from their moorings. Germany was adrift. and This was deeply unsettling for many people, particularly conservatives, including those who would become the Nazis. In fact, the Nazis created their ideal woman in direct opposition to the flapper. Now, what did that woman look like? Well, we're going to find out about that ideal Nazi woman. But first, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back after this. Hey folks, happy new year! It's the 20s again! Hey, hey! If you are in the mood to learn more about the flapper girl in the 1920s, why not check out an audiobook on Audible? Audible is offering our listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash btnewberg and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening today. Why Audible? Well, Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. For example, you can immerse yourself in the 1920s with the classic The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald, Or, if you want something a little more off the beaten path, how about Flapper, a madcap story of sex, style, celebrity, and the women who made America modern. Historian Joshua Zeitz gives us over 11 hours of stories, facts, and fun about the women of the roaring 20s in America. Whether relating what the rules of dating were like in the 20s and how those rules were broken or chronicling the lives of some of the era's brightest stars, this audiobook is a wonderful, colorful, and comprehensive history of the country's first sexual revolution. And I loved it. I think you will, too. You can find this and more on Audible. And if you do, let me know. We can have a little book club together. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash Newberg Again, that is audibletrial.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g for your free audiobook. And now, the history of sex presents this. Look at that girl. That's No, girl. In a world where men were men and women were women, something is changing. That short hair, that dress, is it a man? Is it a woman? What is it? Invasion of the body flappers. That body, it's straight as a board. Masculine women, feminine men, which is the rooster, which is the hen? It's hard to tell them apart today. This summer, terror dances. All right, we're back. So, the new woman, epitomized in The Flapper Girl, went against everything conservatives held dear. Point for point, the Nazis crafted their ideal woman as her opposite. Beginning with her appearance, whereas the new woman cropped her hair short in the boobicope, the ideal Nazi wore her hair long in braids for girls, or long and pinned up neatly for women. Whereas the new woman made her body appear straight as a board, the Nazi woman was buxom and curvy. And whereas the new woman wore thick cosmetics, the Nazi wore no makeup at all, as if to suggest that her beauty was innate, emanating from her superior jeans. And these contrasts continued into the realm of apparel, in which the Nazis took a particular interest. Whereas the new woman wore decadent, quote-unquote, foreign fashions from France or America, the Nazi wore local German designs. Ideally, she was to be clad either in the dirndl or a uniform. Now, the dirndl is that traditional Alpine peasant girdle and skirt, which today we might associate, you know, more with Oktoberfest, but which at the time symbolized Romantic German nationalism. But if the ideal woman was not turning back the clock in this dirndl, she was turning it forward with a slick modernist uniform. See, soldiers were not the only ones privileged to lose themselves in an orgy of sameness. Women did that too. The popularity of uniforms for women was in fact such that, at one point, When further female uniforms were banned, see, the Nazis were starting to get a little jumpy about having women look like soldiers, they didn't want women fighting or giving that perception, and so they thought maybe they shouldn't be wearing uniforms. When they put this ban into place and they replaced their uniforms with the simple red swastika armband that you sometimes see in movies, the rate of female volunteers plummeted. It was apparently that important to these women that they get these cool, fashionable uniforms. And a particularly memorable uniform was that worn by young girls in the female counterpart of the Hitler Youth that we've heard of before in this series, the BDM, which stands for Bund Deutsche Medel, or League of German Maidens. Hitler himself, in fact, took an interest in this uniform, rejecting the original design as too frumpy, calling them old sacks, quote-unquote. I wasn't able to find out what that old design was. I think it was probably a drab, khaki kind of thing. Anyway, Hitler demanded something more appealing. I mean, after all, these were the girls that were supposed to attract his SS men to create the master race. And the result strikingly presaged the Japanese schoolgirl look. Gunther describes it. The Fuhrer-approved uniform consisted of a white blouse, short-sleeved in summer and long-sleeved in winter, which was closed at the neck with a black kerchief and leather knot, a belted navy blue skirt, the length of which was exactly prescribed, short white socks, brown leather shoes with flat heels, and an alpine-look climbing or mountain jacket completed the BDM outfit. Cosmetics were shunned as unnatural and deemed unnecessary for these young women who glowed from health and love of country. So there is your very early Nazi sailor moon. Uniforms were all the rage in Nazi Germany. They perfectly summed up the spirit of the Nazis. You are nothing, your folk is everything. Your value lies in being part of a greater whole. Thus, you need not distinguish yourself from that whole. Uniforms express that and women found it just as appealing as men. So the Nazi woman should apparel herself with the traditional dirndl, which never really caught on that well, to be honest, or the modern uniform, which totally did. But when not bedecked in either, she would at least wear local German designs. And it was actually quite important to fascist economics that fashion be local. See, not only did it befit nationalist pride but it contributed to the fascist goal of autarky, or economic self-sufficiency. Fascists strove for independence from foreign imports, presumably so that foreign sanctions could never be used to undermine their war machines. And to promote autarky, the Nazis appealed to women, who made 80% of all purchases, according to one contemporary article. And that appeal extended to fashion. Magazines for women, such as Frauenwarte, devoted page after page to chic new German designs. And even after the war started, when materials were strictly rationed, magazines proffered templates for women to re-sew old dresses into new ones. Fashion was a fascist obsession. But the ideal Nazi woman replaced the new woman not only in appearance, she also replaced her in thought. Her goals were different. Whereas the new woman worked and followed her own ambitions, the Nazi woman centered herself in the home and motherhood. Propaganda posters showed blonde braided lasses in rustic bucolic settings or bare-breasted nursing a child, really just summing up that message of what she was supposed to be. Her role was portrayed as not less than men, but different. And Reich physician leader Dr. Wagner wrote, quote, The prolific German mother is to be accorded the same place of honor in the German folk community as the combat soldier, since she risks her body and her life for the people and the fatherland as much as the combat soldier does in the roar and thunder of battle. Unquote. Hitler himself, in fact, gave many speeches extolling the heroism of women, saying, quote, The woman has her own battlefield. With every child she brings into the world, she fights her battle for the nation. So a woman's war was not a field, but at home. Her weapon, not the machine gun, but motherhood. And a special medal called the Mutterkreuz, or Cross of Honor of the German Mother, was awarded to those who bore large numbers of children. The gold went to eight. I mean, seriously, Germany would have loved the Octomom. That's kind of what this ideal is right here. Nazis wanted women to be Octomoms. The ideal Nazi woman may not have carried a gun, but she fought in her own way. She was equally a hero of the fatherland. Now, if this rhetoric strikes you as a bit hollow, well, you're not alone. It strikes me that way, too. However, at the time, large swathes were persuaded. As Karen Lynn Braschler notes in her thesis Mothers for Germany, Hitler never tired of boasting that he rose to power on a majority of women votes. Now, that has since been shown by researchers to be a bit of an exaggeration. But many women did vote Nazi. Some 26.5% of women voted for Hitler in 1932, while a full half of women had voted for Nazi candidates the previous year. How's that for a kick in the pants, huh? I mean, new women suffragettes had fought and fought for the right to vote, finally winning it in 1918, And then by 1933, the very women that they empowered helped to elect the most patriarchal regime that Germany had seen in ages. But it was true. The thing about Nazi propaganda aimed at women was it gave them something to do, something to be, something to embody. Brashler writes, Both Hitler and Goebbels in their speeches give women a role in society. They tell women that they are different than men, and that is something to be celebrated. They play into women's pride using words such as vital and important. Believe it or not, many women connected with this rhetoric. Brashler cites a 1936 issue of Frauenwarte, in which author Gertrude Schultz-Klink writes that women are just as vital to the success of the state and the race as men, but, quote, women should first care for those who need her help as mothers of the nation" schultz-clink then denounces the feminism of the past by saying "empty intellectual thinking or a superiority complex have never saved a people" and she concludes by noting "women of the weimar period had forgotten how to quote subordinate themselves to the law of life" i.e. E., to surrender themselves to motherhood now here schultz-clink is saying that it's not men to whom women must be subordinate, but to natural law. Women are the only ones who can give birth, and therefore, with this miraculous power in their hands, how selfish is it if they refuse? Women must fulfill their destiny by becoming mothers. That's what she's saying. The Nazis gave women something to be, and that something was vital. That's how giving a child to the Führer i.e. bearing a child out of wedlock to help get the population back up, became no longer a mark of shame, but a mark of pride. The Nazi woman felt herself a part of something. Revolution was in the air. It demolished the old womanhood and ushered in something new. It was patriarchy, yes, but patriarchy reimagined. Neo-patriarchy, you might call it. An order for the modern era. Women would have a high seat in that order, That seat might have been slightly below and behind men, but it was still a place of honor. Now, of course, today, we know all this was hogwash, right? There were 111 women in Parliament before the Nazis rose to power, and then there were zero. (laughs) There's just no contest. Women were far more empowered in the Weimar Republic period that preceded the Nazi regime than in the Nazi regime. And Hitler himself, in fact is quoted as saying, quote, intelligence in a woman is not an essential thing. And he also said, an intelligent man should take a primitive and stupid woman. That was a real Nazi quote. I'm not making this up. You couldn't make this up if you tried. Nevertheless, at the time, women still flocked in droves to the Nazi cause. Disenchantment with the Weimar era and enchantment with this charismatic new leader was such that the Nazi message was warmly received By many women. In short, the ideal Nazi woman was the opposite of the Weimar New Woman. The rejection of the New Woman in favor of something even more modern. It was the New New Woman. While she may seem horribly atavistic to us today, you know, a throwback from the past, at the time, she appeared the very harbinger of the future. The Third Reich would last for a thousand years, and she was what it would look like. So how did all of this happen? How did the new woman emerge in the first place, only to be replaced by her opposite? The Great War had turned the world upside down. World War I was a catastrophe for the Germans, an unthinkable defeat. It was the loss of empire and forced transition to a republic, the Weimar Republic. And it was the loss of an entire generation of men. And when I say men, I mean men. The trenches had been filled with males. And those not slaughtered outright came home wounded, amputated, shell-shocked, and traumatized. Those were men. But it wasn't just men that went to war. See, women went to war as well, just not to the front lines. They went to work. And therein lies the key difference that catalyzed the emergence of the new woman. And according to some, that's where it all started to go wrong. Irene Gunther describes the situation after the Great War. While German men had gone to the battlefields, women had gone to work in war factories and in hospitals, had single-handedly cared for the children, managed the shop, kept up the farm, and maintained the home front. Although there always had been a large number of women working in Germany, they comprised an invisible, poorly paid workforce, rarely referred to and mostly unacknowledged. The public visibility of women's war work in untraditional occupations, however, could not be ignored. New areas of employment included machine building, chemicals, mining, metalworking, and transportation, sectors of the economy that had traditionally been closed to women. So in other words women had broken into male-coded occupations. And this radically upset traditional gender roles in Germany. Women in mines, women in steel mills, chemical refineries? Perish the thought. This actually happened in much the same way as it did for Americans in World War II. I mean, think of that iconic image of Rosie the Riveter from World War II, you know? Well, the Germans got their Rosies right away in the First World War. You can call her Gertrude the Galvanizer, I suppose. See, during the war, somebody had to fill all those positions once manned by those now carrying guns, and women stepped up. And once they did, and they got a little taste of slightly better wages, not as great as men would have had, but better than they'd had before, and they got a little bit of self-sufficiency and independence and sisterhood, well, many of those women were reluctant to give it up when the war was done. And that simply would not do. From the perspective of German men, World War I was humiliating. I mean, not only did they lose the war, but they came home to this. They came home licking their wounds, just wanting to get back to normal, to put it all behind them, to pretend like they weren't shell-shocked and traumatized and reassure themselves with a little bit of the familiar, good old-fashioned patriarchy, only to discover that their jobs were filled by women. The problem was so acute that the government actually had to step in, and Gunther writes, it, meaning the government, launched a full-scale dismissal campaign. Thousands of women were removed from their war jobs, and although it was ultimately successful, the campaign did not go as smoothly as the authorities had hoped. So women were ordered to step aside, to return to the home, and to let men be men again. Well, okay. But, see, a lot of women resented that, and they never forgot the independence that they had tasted during the war. Women were energized. I mean, in the last year of the war, 1918, they had won the right to vote. In fact, you might say that they were the victors in World War I Germany, but that's beside the point. That that victory, that suffrage, gave them hope. They started getting ideas, as they say, ideas that maybe they could be more than they had been. And while most women did, in fact, return to their domestic roles, That was not true across the board. After all, the war had gutted the male population, so the country confronted what was termed at the time a woman surplus. And being that there were still a lot of jobs that needed filling, again, women stepped in. Most worked in roles that demobilization authorities deemed gender-appropriate, meaning female-coded roles, but many women also ventured outside those bounds this period saw the rise of the female Angestellten or white-collar worker, filling roles like secretary, typist, stenographer, or sales clerk. And while that may not sound like much of a victory to us today, in fact, all of those positions had been seen as male roles before the war. They were male-coded occupations. So this was no longer just Gertrude the Galvanizer. Now you had Bertha the Bureaucrat! and some even started entering into higher professions like medicine and law. And even those that didn't move into traditionally male roles began to re-envision what a woman was, or could be, in the post-war world. This was the new woman. She worked, she kept her own mind, and she dressed to say so. Her behavior was decidedly masculine, as they described it at the time. Now, paralleling this, where women didn't seem like women anymore, men didn't seem like men anymore. I mean, many men found themselves reduced to the status of dependents, unable to work due to war injuries. Gunther writes, Veterans with arms or legs missing, selling newspapers or begging on street corners, were omnipresent in post-war Germany. That gives you an idea of how bad it was for a lot of men. And more than that, many men experienced the role reversal of having to rely on their wives as the breadwinners. What a kick in the nuts. So in other words, women weren't women anymore, men weren't men, gender roles were turning upside down. Post-World War I, Germans confronted a funhouse mirror reflection of the gender roles that they thought they knew. I mean, what's happening to the world when women go to work while men stay at home, crippled and jobless, trying desperately not to admit that they have complicated feelings about the war they just fought? What kind of women were these, and what did that say about these men? This was not the world that they knew. It was a brave new world, and brave new worlds are always terrifying to somebody. Usually it's the ones who stand to lose. The new woman, with her short hair and independent attitude, not to mention her dancing was the perfect symbol of the zeitgeist, you know, the spirit of the times. And some thought that that spirit was a demonic spirit indeed. In fact, a 1925 article from the Berliner Illustrate Zeitung bore the bellicose title, Now that's enough against the masculinization of women. This had gone too far, in the opinion of many. This was exactly the image that the Nazis would invert. Their concept... Of the ideal woman would be diametrically opposed to the new woman, which was epitomized in the flapper girl. On every single point that the flapper girl represented, they went the other way. If the flapper girl was straight as a board, the ideal Nazi would be curvy. If the flapper was dolled up with makeup, the Nazi would be natural. If the flapper was independent, the Nazi would be subordinate. And if the flapper was a foreign influence, the Nazi would be native through and through. The ideal woman of the Nazis was the anti-new woman The anti-flapper. And yet, the Nazis could not simply round up flapper girls and toss them in concentration camps. So let's now finally talk about how they attacked the new woman. They needed to breed the new master race. They were more interested in what was in the flapper's blood than what was in her head. Her mind could be molded with the proper indoctrination, but her blood could not be replaced. That was their thinking. Her womb was a national resource. Therefore, there was no moment where the Gestapo came in the night for the flapper girl. That didn't happen. The new woman was not sent to the camps. Instead, she was attacked indirectly by making her the victim of a nefarious plot. Who is the villain behind this plot? Well, you will not be surprised by the answer. It was the Jews. See, a large percentage of the German fashion industry, which created the clothing worn by the new woman, especially the flapper, was controlled by Jews. Now, it was not quite the 80% touted by Nazi propaganda. That was false. But Jews were disproportionately represented, controlling about 49% of the clothing design and manufacturing in Berlin in 1925. Now, how that came to be is actually a fascinating, if ultimately tragic, story. And it underscores how closely tied were the Nazi platforms on sex and anti-Semitism. So, to conclude for today, let's look at the connection between the new woman and Jews. Since medieval times, Jews in German areas had been legally limited in their transactions with Christians. For example, they could not sell new clothes to them. They could, however, sell used clothes, and so many of them became peddlers of second-hand apparel. Then, in the 17th century, a textile shortage after the Thirty Years' War led the father of Frederick the Great, Frederick Wilhelm, to relax this restriction just for 50 privileged Jewish families, and the descendants of those families grew and prospered. Later, Napoleonic influence in the early 19th century eventually led to the emancipation of the Jews upon German unification in 1871, allowing them to freely capitalize upon their by now centuries of experience in tailoring. Eventually, they developed a new sector of the fashion industry called confection or ready-to-wear clothing. See, whereas previous clothing had been tailor-made to fit each individual customer, this was the genesis of the -the buy-it-off-the-rack style clothing that we are so familiar with today. You know, like you you go to Walmart or Target and you get a size that you know will fit more or less, no tailor necessary, and done deal. This was called confection, or ready-to-wear clothing. This was a boom for Germany, Gunther writes. By the late 1890s, the outerwear or overcoat sector of the ready-to-wear industry alone officially employed 50,000 persons and had sales, foreign and domestic, of 120 million marks. Those numbers kept climbing as the 20th century began. In 1913, on the eve of the First World War, export figures for fashion and related goods had practically doubled, increasing to well over 1.5 billion marks the fashion industry and its various branches were exporting more than any other industry in the nation, approximately 15% of the total value of all German exports. So in short, although Paris remained the center of high fashion, Germany had conquered the world with ready-to-wear fashion, and Jewish clothiers had catapulted Germany onto the world stage. They had done a favor for their nation, indisputably. And yet, for all their efforts, they were thrown under the bus. It was just too easy of a sell for Nazi propagandists. See, Jewish ready-to-wear magnates were, first of all, visibly unperturbed by the economic hardships of the Weimar era, including the massive inflation that we heard of, and that rankled feathers. So pundits attacked them with relish. And after all... What could be more scandalizing than the stench of a quote-unquote inferior race on that which is closest to your very body, your clothing? I mean, the propaganda practically wrote itself. That is how the Nazis attacked the new woman, by attacking Jews. The new woman was not herself to blame. She was just a victim of a nefarious plot. Her penchant for foreign fashions and behaviors was due to the hypnotic powers of Jewish tailors. and The woman herself was salvageable. She only had to be brought to see the error of her ways. Then she could be refashioned into the ideal Nazi woman, i.e. the dutiful, heroic, and thoroughly domestic mother of the fatherland. And in this way, the Nazis were able to eradicate the new woman without eradicating her womb. Now, when all this was over, all the progress in women's roles made during and after the Great War in the Weimar Republic period was basically reversed. Yet it appeared at the time like a step forward. I mean, women had embraced their suffrage, voted for Hitler, proudly stepping forward, declaring their own subordination. Women had spoken, so they said, and what she said was, all hail the patriarchy. Now, despite the rhetoric, Nazi Germany was, in many ways, a state by and for men. No surprise, we know that now. But speaking of which, what was it like for men? I mean, you might think that it would be one long bachelor party for them, you know, an endless series of yeah bros and fist bumps. On the contrary, however, men too were browbeaten and cajoled into conformity of a very particular kind. So what was that like? Well, for that, you'll have to wait till the next episode where we explore masculinity in the fatherland. That's what's coming up when we continue our super deep dive series, Sex in the Third Reich, in two months. Next month, we'll be doing something a little different. I haven't decided exactly what just yet, but we'll make it good. And this month, we will, of course, have some short shorts coming at you, including a look at jazz and fears of African influence creeping into the pop culture and bedrooms of Germany. Folks, if you like what we're doing here and you want to show your support, the best thing you can do is subscribe, download all the episodes, and rate and review on iTunes. We also have a Patreon page shared with my other show, Dead Ideas, which you can find at www.patreon.com forward slash btnewberg. $5 a month gets you a portrait drawn in the time period and culture of your choosing. I will draw you as a -a straight-as-a-board flapper punk, giving the middle finger to conformity. Or whatever you want. I'll make you look awesome. I promise. That's patreon.com slash b-t-n-e-w-b-e-r-g. Alright, that's it for today. I'll see you next time. I'm BT Newberg, and this is the History of Sex. Podcast theme music mixed from tracks by Kevin McLeod. For additional credits, references, photos, and more, see our website at www.historyofsexpod.com.